Welcome to The Jam Packed, an independent podcast inspired by the campaigns led by the WI. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dylan Yamada Rice about mental health, specifically about the stories we tell ourselves and each other about our experiences of mental illness. As someone with both physical and mental conditions, I know that there is a real burden put on those living with health issues to communicate their conditions to others. In the first part of this episode, Dylan and I talk generally about this struggle and what it means to us as people and as patients. In the second half, we talk about how drawing can open up a whole new way of communication and private reflection that is independent from words. So I have um, two jobs. Uh, One job is in academia where um, I've just begun a new post working at Manchester Met University. Um, in their new school of digital arts um, and I'm going to be teaching immersive storytelling and then in my other job um, I'm a researcher for a video games company Mm. so yeah so both sides are I guess related to play and stories. Yeah the the idea of storytelling is quite interesting when it comes to like what we're talking about because so much of making sense of you know whether it's physical health or mental health or whatever is happening in your life it's turning it into a story. I think I um I read somewhere or heard somewhere once that it's what separates humans from other animals is our desire and ability to tell stories. Very Pratchett calls um, humans the storytelling ape. <laughs> Some days I feel more ape-like than humans. <laughs> <laughs> but the stories are always consistent, aren't they? I guess throughout history and throughout our lives, we sort of pick certain stories and retell certain ones and. Has, has your work influenced how you have approached your own story? Oh, that's a good question. I think for a long time because like I like I like storytelling and I like drawing and I like art and I like the stories that you find in paintings or in children's books. I love children's books illustrations. And I think for a long time, I thought I had to just pretend that they were like the non-professional part of me and that I should just like keep them in the background. And then, yeah, I would be this like more serious academic or whatever job I was doing at the time. And then, um, yeah, I just realized after a while, actually, they're probably all connected. Like, (laughs) sounds so obvious when you say it out loud, but yeah, all the threads of us are, are connected. And so... We may as well draw them all into one thing because when we try and separate them out from this is private and this is work and this bit can go public, I think it can be quite complicated. Yeah, like how we're taught at school, it, it's it's very much it. Here's the, the art class and that's sectioned off from all of the other um, ways that you learn and understand about the world. Yeah, and I think it's possibly worse at the moment because they're called things like enrichment subjects. And um, you may have heard in the news in the last couple of days that the government's proposing a 50% cut um, to all art subjects in universities because they're not considered essential. So that idea of marginalising art or different ways of knowing the world other than science... I'm sorry, that's my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about worlds colliding. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So before we get a bit ahead of ourselves, if you can you tell me a bit about your experience with uh, mental health or mental illness, and um, you know how 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 your sort of creativity then led you to sort of see it differently or communicate it differently. 
Yeah, I think when I reflect back now, I probably always suffered with quite severe bouts of depression, perhaps since like my late teenage years, where I would go to bed and not get up for a few months. And um, my brother would do things like try to paint my walls yellow to cheer me up. (laughs) And (laughs) I didn't really think much of it, um, which I guess means that I must have felt that I was managing it, um, that I didn't need to think of it as depression or I was at a point in my life where I didn't have a child and so I could go to bed for a few months and and it wouldn't matter. Um, And then, um, yeah, in 2011, I was um, caught up in in the big earthquake in Japan and the tsunami. And um, I got quite ill with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which I didn't understand at all at the time because it wasn't, a mental health thing that I'd ever really read about. I think I'd probably heard about it in relation to soldiers in the war and and so on. This is already sort of hinting at the um, value of stories because you've heard the stories of the Unicot and Macho presentation of PTSD, of like war and soldiers. But how, how does that match your story, which is a completely different story? Yeah, I guess at the time I... I wouldn't have linked the two things together. I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm I'm insane. <laughs> I kind of even describe what that what that means particularly. I tried to match it to something logical, like maybe I'm iron deficient, so that's why I'm really dizzy all the time, or um, to try to match it to these physical health things, and and I couldn't. <laughs> And um, yeah, so I guess that's when I, now when I reflect back on it, you can understand it, can't you, quite clear, quite clearly. And um, it was about six months after the tsunami until I returned to the UK and I saw the doctor and they diagnosed me with PTSD. And I was obsessed with trying to get back to the version of me that didn't have PTSD. So I kept saying things like, well, when will it end? <laughs> what medicine can I take so that I can just go back to being me? And um, it must have been maybe another year and a half later when I was still unwell, but bumbling around in, in life as you do, that I bumped into um, a fellow student um, who was studying English English literature. And he's he was doing his PhD about comics and mental health and he said oh you should read this and it was called the now now of brown um it was actually about OCD it was nothing to do with PTSD or depression or anything and then when I started reading it and the ways in which they depicted what goes on in the mind I was like this is really helpful in a way that everything that happened in the year and a half before of medicine and psychiatrists and pamphlets to read (laughs) Um, and scales (laughs) scales to be marked that were unhelpful yeah yeah because that that really sort of goes sort of taps into the the thing about school where you sort of isolate the artistic way of understanding from all the other ways because you you know I I don't think either of us would say that um, medicine or like a, a biological understanding is not helpful um but that's not what 
and a whole person is you know you have your your own experience of what that then means in your own life and, and also because we're just told aren't we to some it's okay for some things to come to the fore and some things should remain hidden and I remember having a conversation with somebody at work quite early on and I think they had suggested I might need to take some time off work I was saying I could probably come to work if I could come to work and cry <laughs> like I could do my work I think and it would actually probably be helpful to me but it would make everyone else I worked with really awkward <laughs> and I was trying to think about why do, why does that make everyone feel so awkward compared to if you come to work and you're like really happy like yeah why, how have we how have we got to that stage where yeah we someone in the house and close the door until they can smile again yeah it's, it's really interesting like when people talk about um disability and access so with my own disability you, you know I'm not necessarily thinking in terms of a wheelchair ramp things like um like the temperature of the building would make or break whether I could stay there for a, a prolonged period of time and th things like you being able to cry at work that's an access issue but it's not thought of like that yeah that's true I even I hadn't thought about it like that and there are places where you can cry at work like the toilets <laughs> <laughs> and so quite often you go to the toilet and you find colleagues in there crying hopefully hopefully not because they're depressed but maybe something there's been a blip in their day <laughs> um but yeah it, it's it's funny that those those emotions have to have to get hidden away so so, so when, when often we talk about illness we have the story that gets told is the um almost like the mechanics of it and I've, I've been very interested uh in the last few years but I keep noticing that when people talk about mental health they often talk about the brain and the brain does things almost as if you know the brain is the new demon <laughs> so like in medieval times like someone might be mentally ill because that you know there's a demon that has possessed them it's almost like we we, we talk about our brains as a, a thing that possesses us we don't really talk about uh minds anymore or um you know the stories that we tell ourselves to understand our situation and, and the contact context that we're in there was another in relation to that i think there was another significant turning point with regards to storytelling and how i felt about my own illness um and that was reading actually i might have it on the shelf here but it was reading this book called I think it's called The Ghosts of the Tsunami and it was talking about it was a series of interviews with people who had survived the tsunami in Japan and they were talking about how right after the tsunami they had um they they couldn't sleep they were they might be vomiting or they might see things that weren't there and so what essentially they were describing were the symptoms of PTSD that I'd been diagnosed with. But what they did for treatment was they went to see a priest because they felt like they, and the priest would say, well, so many people died so suddenly that their spirits had nowhere to go. So they possessed the living temporarily. So you've been forced to take on all these emotions that didn't like have anywhere to go. And whether you believe in spirituality, and I would say that I'm probably an atheist, the idea of how we try to make sense of things, that spiritual side of seeing something compared to the hard Western edge of me medicine of, 
okay, well, we'll, we'll stop you vomiting with this drug and we'll, um, we'll stop you having panic attacks with, with, this, with this drug. And then eventually this drug will level you out so much that you'll become really slow. And, you know, you won't have to necessarily think about these things. It's kind of a bit like that too. It's all like, how do you see the, how do you see the world? How do you know which parts are real and which parts aren't real? And that's like a really, it's all really blurry, isn't it? We yeah. believe in some things that we can't prove. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's almost to. like figuring out the different kinds of truth as well, because um, mm. I wouldn't literally believe that those ghosts are affecting people, but it does make sense that like we do take on um, the emotions of others and we think about them and um it, you know we, we haunt each other um and so mm. when you do see a huge amount of suffering um that spiritual story sort of seems true to me without literally believing it's real and also I start to wonder if the reason that we say I'm sorry I you know obviously I'm an atheist and I don't believe in these things and so on is also part of how we've been conditioned in some way there was a an exhibition I think about two and a half years ago at the Wellcome Trust in London about the history of magic and they talked about how um, seances first came to kind of popularity um, at the end of World War One, I, I think it was, because people were losing people in such big numbers and when they were young that they, they didn't know how to recover from that. So you want to believe that there's a way to talk to somebody. <laughs> and so I think even when you look at, at history, you can see these things that we do to try to make sense of stuff that's not physical, that it's emotional or it's mental or whatever, that perhaps aren't necessarily easy to understand by, by the physical sciences, maybe. Mm. Now, I sound quite, now I sound quite hippie. <laughs> <laughs> you're an, you're an I won the medicine too. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if you had like completely let, let's say you you didn't even have an illness but an injury like you, mm. you you lost a leg for example that's still an emotional thing that exists in your mind and it, it has a non-physical component mm. you know that loss is physical and non-physical it's, it's that's interesting too because I feel like um because people can see it it's almost like well, that's the main thing. Your, your missing leg is the main thing. So we'll, we'll deal with that. And then you should be okay to get to get better. Yeah, I see. I see a lot of kind of posts online or, you know, when I talk to people who have either non-visible or hidden conditions, like less obvious conditions that you can't, you know, mm. look and know. Um, you know, they'll, they'll make these comparisons to like injuries like a broken leg or a lost leg. And I always kind of think, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure they're also not believed in ways that we haven't actually thought about. Because mm. we can see that one thing, but there's all the other things we can't see. And I've also wondered, like, because, like, my story of PTSD comes from the tsunami and the tsunami was, like, on international news and it was so extreme that it almost makes it easier for people to believe that I would be ill as a result however <laughs> if I tell people well yeah I would have to go to sleep <laughs> for, for months on end with depression as a teenager and I can't really say 
why that was the case. Yeah, you, you have um, to keep people have to, that story to relate to. So with the tsunami, um, I remember that happen, happening, so I can relate to that story. But, um, you know, with my own experience with depression, I can also relate that if I didn't have that experience, I might be thinking, well, what story explains the thing that you've just said? Like, yeah, in it too. In a way, like I always wonder what happens if you don't have a massive story. How how do you survive? Then how do people how, how do people relate to it? I, um, I often think one of the hardest periods of illness is when you're getting ill and you don't know what is happening to you and you therefore can't tell other people and you can't tell yourself and you Mm. don't know the direction things are going to go in either so Mm. the story that you're trying to communicate is unformed unknown and always changing as you're trying to figure it out in my case that was that was quite literal because um I, I had got it into my head that I was going to I was going to die that was like the only end point at which all these conditions were, 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 were leading to. But I felt like if I tried to articulate that, I would speed that process up. And so in my mind, I was trying to be mentally strong and tell myself that I was going to live. But people were asking me, what, what, what's the problem? And I was thinking, stop asking me, because if I say it, <laughs> it's going to happen, which sounds so insane now. But I guess it's like, now that I'm not in that space, but yeah, how can you describe things in that moment when you don't understand it yourself? And then when another human being comes into that space, it's really complicated, I think. Yeah, and then you feel even more split because then you have to present them with something. Um, Yeah. Where it actually just further complicates <laughs> you know the, the the story because you have the the private self and the social self ideally like there'd be a bridge between the two or they'd merge but yeah. when you you have all these complications like that there's a split and I guess that's something else I think about quite a lot too and maybe where the comics and the drawing and stuff comes in is because I think I'm fairly articulate quite a lot of the time but in that moment I wasn't articulate in that period of time I wasn't really very articulate but I could see by looking at a lot of people who would be in the waiting room alongside me that I was still way more articulate than a lot of people and I started thinking this this is so hard this is taking everything out of me to try to explain what kind of help or what I need like there has to be a better way than having to just sit face to face in front of someone and try to use some words or try to use like a some metric scales and so so on and I still believe that now I don't know what the answer is I'm not sure that for talking for everyone is the right way so that's that's an excellent segue (laughs) (laughs) so how, how different is drawing or comics um than verbal or written uh, communication or storytelling I think probably like the easiest way maybe to to describe it for people who are listening is that probably you can remember a favorite kid's book that you had and an emotional event that happened in that kid's book so maybe that's like you know where the wild things are and you got sent to bed early and you know you could see he was in his wolf suit and his head was like low and he was annoyed 
And then he went away and he had the wild rumpus and it was crazy. As you're saying those things, like you can picture the emotions much more clearly through the drawings, at least for me. And then with those drawings come, I suppose, the sense of imagining being that character or taking on that role. So I think with, with comics, like reading the comics and looking at the drawings, um, particularly for mental health, like it, it felt like the medium can do things that perhaps words can't do, um, that particularly around emotion, because you can you know, over-exaggerate how tired somebody looks, or you can change their posture and exaggerate it, or you can draw things that are completely imagined within the mind and still have the outside world looking completely normal, yeah. which is very hard to get that split in, in, in writing. And do you find it is more shareable, like more social in a way to turn it into a comic? I don't know if, if for me, like because I've been drawing my own comic and I've been drawing it for years and I keep wondering if I'm ever going to finish it, whether also the drawing is very therapeutic as well, because I guess it'll be very familiar, the term mindfulness to everybody of being in the moment. And I feel like when I'm drawing, you're literally, it's your hand and a line and, and your thoughts about that thing, but everything else has gone to the periphery. Um, and it takes time. So often when I'm talking, I'm responding really quickly to what's been asked or I'm trying to think on my feet, but with drawing, it's much slower. So there's a lot more time to kind of process what you're, you're thinking. So then, yeah. yes, the act of drawing and the looking at the drawings is different as well. Yes, and it, it makes me think a little bit about the um the ghosts that we mentioned as well. Like when, when you're writing things, you're kind of trying to think, how can I get across like the, the factual information and the right word to convey the fact? Whereas where you're drawing, you're you're more thinking, how can I convey this emotion and you know, rather than, you know, what, what is the best, uh, you know, what, what words do I need to use? You're kind of thinking, oh, what colour goes with this colour? <laughs> and then it's a completely different um, uh, zone that you enter in. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And you're thinking, I guess, about the relationships between things much more so when you're drawing you're like, well, if there's a desk, where, where does the chair go? And then if there was a person, where does the other person go? but that's not yeah it's not the same with writing yeah it both takes you out of it and puts you in it um so I I have a blog where you know I'm trying to explain my conditions and what's going on on with me but I I also um kept a kind of comic myself and I remember both you know you think about the message and what you want to say but so often like you you draw and then you think oh what does a chair actually look like (laughs) (laughs) you know like rather than like getting really stuck on like how to word something you then have to step back and think oh I just need to go and look at a chair yeah and also that thing about then observing the chair and the angles of the chair and trying to like use a line to represent them also takes I think your mind into a different space where you're kind of I don't know if it's relaxing because Sometimes drawings come out all wrong, don't they? And it's not relaxing, but you're definitely, yeah, it's definitely using a different part of sort of your cognitive thinking, I think. I suppose drawing immediately puts you into a shared space 
where um, writing is, you know, just from your inside world and that shared space um, kind of gets you out of yourself as well. You can, yeah, I think that's true. And then also at the same time in a drawing, you can have different layers of things that are going on as well. And I think you can mix the serious and the ridiculous or the hilarious or the funny or whatever together, even in the same picture. And that's quite hard to imagine being able to do with with writing. Um, so I think yeah, like you could have a joke going on in the background of your comic, which isn't actually the main thing, but it just adds a little something that is necessary, which yeah. you can't really convey in writing. Yeah, exactly. And also that for me relates quite a lot to what you're saying about health as well you're not you can be really ill or you can be really depressed but it doesn't mean that you might never laugh at something or you might not ever step back and think that's ridiculous that's just happened or that's been on the news or um but I think with the drawing you can you can bring some of that humor into the the awfulness of what you're trying to describe as well so how has your comics changed how you understand you know what what was going on with you so before when you were going to the GP and he had like the charts and the numbers and the pills and then comics happened <laughs> has, it, has it has it changed I guess it's a little bit like um yeah it's a little bit what you're saying about the physical and the mental health not being separate like now the GP and the comics and the therapist that I've seen and the medicine like they're all part of the same story and I guess the comics gave me a way to make sense of the whole journey but I think like with the I think with the doctor like I have a really great GP and he always listens and he always tries to respond to what I'm saying and he's he's quite honest as well like he'll say we just don't know that yet that's you know that <laughs> that's the difficulty with with mental health and and so on it's it it's very complicated compared to physical health maybe and I've kind of lost my thread now of what I was trying to say but I, th I think I felt an awareness from him that he knew the resources that he had were limited to the to the needs of of mental health and that's quite rare I think that's quite rare in a doctor because they've been brought up to be problem solution and, and so. did did your involvement in in art help you accept their limitations so uh, the limitations of of, of the, the, the kind of um medical way of treating you yeah I think so there's always been that that debate as well about whether artists are more susceptible to mental illness because they can see the world a bit differently and then I'm not gonna say one way or the other on that but I do think imagination is definitely a, a part of you know if you can see alternative ways even if you're if you're not poorly if you can see alternative ways of of writing or telling a story or inventing something or building a new car or you're likely to be able to imagine other possibilities beyond the hardcore facts of medicine I think yeah and that taking ownership of your story is I think really important when it comes to um, and any kind of health or crisis situation like that like you're in. Um, and often, I know I always felt the case with me that my story was dependent on these doctors. Um, whereas the the more kind of 
which, yeah, the more control I took back of it, whether it was drawing or writing or meeting other people in the same situation and, you know, sharing with other people who got it, um, that really helped with that lack of control that I felt. But do you think that's also because you had a lot more time to understand it yourself? Because maybe in the beginning when you described like you're in that point where you're getting scared because you're getting sick and you don't understand it at that point if you don't know the answer yourself you're a solution seeker in a way so the people you seek solutions from have more power and then it takes a lot of time to get the power back to you yeah no I see what you're saying but um so my first diagnosis was ME and um it was so poorly understood and there's a lot of skepticism as well like, around the time I was diagnosed, which I, th- I think has changed now a, a bit, uh, not completely. But it was it was a real battle um, with doctors and you go and see one and they'd have one opinion and you'd see another and they'd have another opinion. So it was, um, you know, years and years and years until I, I was able to kind of begin taking my story back and, and thinking, um, you know, they don't get to tell it. I do yeah do you feel that you've ever met any health professionals along the way who have helped you tell your story or see your story in a way that's beneficial because when I when I think about the health professionals I've come across like the thanks the thankful way in which I've described my GP I could also tell you the awful ways in which I've been dealt with by other GPs but then I've seen a horrible psychiatrist who I would say made things a lot worse for me for a long period of time and then I saw the best therapist after and so that's also really difficult to navigate because you have to invest so much of yourself to work out whether it's a relationship that is going to work in some way for for you that's I think it's really hard yeah yeah and it is it's that, that kind of uh social nature of, of storytelling um you, you know you you tell someone and they interpret it and they give that back to you and when these people have a lot of um control over what then happens to your story or the time that you spend with your story um that that can either be devastating or really energizing yeah absolutely and yeah the devastating ones I suppose are worse because you start with a feeling of hope like there would often be a small glimmer of hope if I would get to see somebody new like oh my god maybe they're gonna do something that's gonna offer hope (laughs) and then when you tell them like your entire life story and they're like door closed <laughs> like, okay uh, now I'm not too sure what to do <laughs> like it's the, the the rise and the fall I suppose of that but I suppose yeah just coming back on onto that note because my comic in it I tend to draw animals and not people that was a helpful mechanism for me like the useless people I felt like I could get them down as like really slow sloths or bulls in china shops or whatever it was that could make me remove them from from this sort of human world and I found that quite yeah quite relaxing (laughs) and we talked about that book uh hyperbole and a half um and I think she's very good at doing that too of you know this is a ridiculous moment in this in this uh yeah hard otherwise hard point of point in time yeah Yeah, we, we also talked about um the simplicity um, actually um, can convey more complex ideas than you know a long piece of writing. Yeah, I think there's like a great moment where 
um, she'd been depressed for such a long time that she was on the sofa and they just showed over a series of images I don't know if you remember this one that she was trying to sleep on more and more like dirty clothes under <laughs> her, and it was so easy to relate to even though they didn't look like the details of clothes or whatever and then there was a point where she found something like she bent down to look under the fridge and she saw a pee under there and it's just made her laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and she couldn't <laughs> stop laughing <laughs> it was about nothing and in words, that would have been the most boring story. Yeah, you'd have words. to get the wording exactly right for that yeah. show to land. But with the drawing, um, we're almost in on it because we're also seeing the P. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I think even with like kids' books, if you can bring it back to kids' books, if people haven't read comics, like um, there's this great kids' book called don't let the pigeon drive the bus and this pigeon really 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 wants to drive a bus and he's making all these excuses like throughout of why he should be able to drive this bus and then there's a double page spread where he realizes he's not gonna be able to drive the bus and it's just like manic pigeon and there's feathers flying out everywhere and he's like shaking around and when you see that picture you think it just completely encapsulates the idea of a of a pigeon would be bus driver not being able to fulfill his dream <laughs> yeah and how would you write that you you kind of can't because it's so it's an emotional thing isn't it so the the wobbliness of the line or the hardness of the line or is much more helpful than a word I guess so, so with, with children as well um a lot of them a lot of kids books are, are brilliant even for adults you know and we forget how good they are um, and a lot of the the joy I think of uh, other people having kids or you having kids yourself you get to look at these books again and you realize how good they are um, but there's also a playfulness in drawing that isn't necessarily there with writing yeah I guess there's like a, it's difficult isn't it I always think about and this I guess this is the academic side of me because I, I you know I did a PhD that was essentially about types of communication and so on but the history of writing in the UK is so long and for drawing and illustration for stories they were seen as childish for so many centuries that once you became an adult you gave up the drawings in the books and you read um so that weight of that history of separation between can read and can't read needing drawings and not needing drawings yeah that's so interesting because um your ability to read and write that that has been used to control the masses for hundreds of years um and even when most people can read and write you then go on to de develop specialized languages um you know to you know that maybe academics will use certain phrases that only people in that particular field will, will get and understand whereas a drawing most people can look at it and it's accessible yeah and I know um you know like a lot of academic work around communication talks about images coming into their own with digital technology and so on and of course you know we all know now that you take like a million photographs and your mobile phone and so on but I wonder if that shift, which is so recent in history, allows us to 
believe in other forms of images so not just photographs but now suddenly there's a there is a big graphic novel market that mm. hadn't been there previously really in the UK and there's a whole specialism on you know mental health comics or physical health comics or I think they're called like medical humanities graphic novels or something like that and there's you know you can probably choose an illness and go out and read a book on it in comic form today that's hard to imagine like 20 years ago that that would have happened Um, yeah and it opens so much potential for new ways of understanding and processing yeah and I think that goes back a little bit to some of those differences as well that I found interesting with Japan that was trying to say about the the ghosts and so on is it's not about spirituality particularly it's just about cultural concepts I suppose of how we construct what we should what stories can be seen and what can't be seen and by what methods and modes you know so what what is a good oral story what is a good written story what is a good drawn story like they have all their own histories as well but they're not the same for every culture and about what can and can't be seen when you draw you are making visible something that can be seen even with a photograph you know you you can't see things in photographs that you can see in drawings yeah or you can see things that aren't necessarily there because it's all related to your memory and Mm. and your imagination so that idea of I happen to know you have a brother maybe (laughs) if you like (laughs) looked at a childhood photograph that you might remember what was going on in that photograph from each other differently yeah even though the so-called hard evidence that you're staring at is the same yeah yeah you you might also misremember when that picture was taken and then that puts a whole new spin on it for whoever's looking at it and also because stories get retold so you might have looked at that photo you know with your mum and she might have reminded you of something you'd forgotten and your brother might not have been there at that time (laughs) hear that part of the story so they get reworked as well don't they And I think images are the same too. Like when I go back and look at things that I've drawn, I'm like, oh, I totally forgot that 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 thing happened or that reminds me, you know. So it also allows you to kind of re-remember things differently as well. Yeah, and these these reference points, um, you know, to take it back to mental health, it's kind of no wonder people can't understand. Like with with your story about PTSD, there is a reference point that people um, Mm. can relate to because we saw it on the news that first. Uh, other conditions mental physical you know whatever Mm. um if there is not that reference point um then people just can't understand they I mean how can they without reference points and you know they might have one but just having one could actually throw them off balance because most stories um you know of this kind they're very complicated and you know and having that one reference is not enough that kind of breeds stereotypes rather than understanding I just also I think that our reference points and benchmarks are personal to us so I remember uh, I was working with someone once and their rabbit died and they they took a few days off work because they were so upset and somebody else said to me that that's ridiculous you know it's just a rabbit and I was thinking we don't actually know we can't make that decision like if that's for them the the closest relationship they've had or the worst thing that's happened like that feeling in that moment is is very real and um 
there's a there was a number one bestseller called something like how to be happy or some, something it's by Matt Haig have you heard of that oh yeah yeah and I bought it because it'd been like the number one bestseller for so long I wanted to know what it said and the only useful thing in the whole book sorry <laughs> he's, he, he said he feels it really helpful to make those own marker points yourself like if you make a list of your own bad days you you make your own reference points so you don't have to keep saying it was a tsunami or it was a car crash or it was this and then you take like you're saying you can take back control of your own story you don't have to mm. be like, I'm really sorry I'm so upset it was just a rabbit for you that's your day yeah and by creating the drawings if you share them you create references for other people which they can think of the image in a way that they can't think of you know a blog post or something yeah that's true like the wild rumpus and where the wild things yeah, are yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, well, going back to what we said actually about the kind of hierarchy of image and written language, um, we do also have a hierarchy with uh, images as well, and that we are exposed mostly to people who are professionals and they're just like, you know, they're, they're extremely talented. Um, and that can be quite alienating for some people if they want to have a go, they might think that they have to be good, um, you know, that, that, that they can you know, draw as complex or, you know, in a particular style that they admire. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to Ali Brosh and her hyperbole and a half book, I mean, they're, they're just stick people in a way, but in a way, there's so much more than that as well. So I suppose that's one aspect. And the other aspect is you don't even have to share your drawings with anyone if you don't want to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can just do it and you can you know put them to one side and uh, come back to them also There's sometimes a... the most powerful comics i've seen have been really really crude and really just um like a child has done them even though it's an adult <laughs> that has done them um so one um i came across it, it was but the comic he'd only done one and it was called something like um the day emily died and it was about um a stillbirth and he was the dad and he was you know talking about what that was like um and the drawings um were so impactful because and I say this with great affection <laughs> they were really crap <laughs> I mean, it, it made it so much more emotional like they were they were just black outlines really blobby and it just conveyed such vulnerability and you felt just so endeared to, to the teller of the story it made it so relatable because it was not a good drawing um, and I think I think I can totally relate to that as well with because of teaching in an art school that quite often you know students come and they they do a quick sketch of something they're thinking of and you get to see that and then they've they work it up and they work it up and it's all polished and of course, the polished thing looks really professional and so on and so on. But on a personal level, quite often that initial drawing, because it's got all the energy of them in it, like I've got this idea, is much more exciting. Mm. And I think I think with a lot of genres of art, like there is that thing of, you know, you should polish everything and polish everything, at least at the moment of, of where we're at, at the moment in art history. But then with comics, I think that's not necessarily expected. Like there are very polished drawings and there are drawings that look like, you know, photorealistic. But then there are also, like you said, just ones that are just really rough and ready. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they're not good. But no. They might be yeah. bad, but they're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. There's um, another book by somebody called Linda Barry. Forgotten what it's called. Oh, here it is called Syllabus. There it is. And there she gets um, the students in her class to draw, and they're all really worried because they haven't drawn for like since they were kids. And she does a little drawing, and there's a bad drawing. And the student says, You know, oh, this is a bad drawing. And then the drawing just has a speech bubble coming out saying, I don't care. And I. <laughs> <laughs> and it, that is like, yeah, what are we, what are we scared of? The drawing doesn't care if it's crap, and <laughs> it does, it doesn't yeah. matter. The drawing is just happy it exists. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, where would you advise people to start if they like this idea that they have no idea what they're doing? They haven't drawn before. I guess it's like when you start anything, isn't it? I would say, you know, pick pick some comics to to read see if any of them inspire you enough so if you're if you like drawing just go for it just draw but if you feel nervous because you haven't drawn for ages like maybe you can get inspiration from having a look at some other people's drawings hyperbole and a half is a good one for that because it's so simply drawn i think but yeah the more the more you look at them other people's drawings the more you start to think I've got a story I wonder if there if there was any kind of mental health or GP type people to listen what they would think about the idea of getting rid of metrics and rather than someone comes in and you're like here's a scale of one to ten how do you how have you felt since we last met on all of these levels what if we had to do a drawing or what if (laughs) (laughs) there couldn't be numbers or there couldn't be words like do they think that there's any value in that from their point of view yeah uh, it's it's finding finding ways that I think to process information differently um you know because there's the way to process the information you get from your GP and then mm. there's putting that in the context of your whole life and having to process that mm. I guess I wish there was a bit more it was a bit more porous that those two things were were mixed together a bit like how I said I wish you could go to work when you wanted to cry that you could still go to work like yeah I wish you could get your prescription and collect a comic (laughs) for some people one might be more helpful than the other but it's not always consistent you know so if we could make those things more porous I think have you ever tried art therapy have I ever tried art therapy did you say yeah um no only self-inflicted hang on that is the sound of my pill alarms just to prove everybody i'm not against medication that's the sound of my rattling politics now i have to say that i'm not i'm not against it either and i think that's the thing is we should just be open to everything every possibility if running works great if medicine works great if well, actually works, that, that reminds great. me that you know when i did start them drawing and then writing then drawing again um, I did feel more confident in talking to my GP and I then um, I don't think it's a coincidence that I I take more medication now um, because my confidence went up and I was able to ask for things and tell them no this isn't working or yes this one is working um, which I didn't feel I was able to do before. Mm. You get more familiar don't you I suppose with whatever the aspects that you want to articulate the most as well if you spent time processing that through writing or through drawing and you're, you're more able I suppose to be able to articulate verbally afterwards that that makes sense yeah. Yeah 
And there's something about the act of like drawing a face on the page and you look at that expression and you have empathy for the expression for the character that you've drawn. Whereas if you look at a page of writing, there isn't a face looking back at you for you to relate to. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I quite often draw because we're always on Zoom at the moment and... Like it's like looking in the mirror all day every day and sometimes I might draw something that's happened in a, in a meeting or something in comic form and when I look at it I realise that it's nothing like the face of myself that I've been looking at in that meeting but it is more like what was going on behind that face <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. it's still a face <laughs> yeah I like that so what would be your, your one takeaway that you'd want people to, to leave with oh no <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say be kind but it sounds like such a cliche I don't want that to be it <laughs> remember there's more to life than being professional <laughs> that's a good one actually because you know there's a lot of pressure like when you draw you feel you have to have that professional standard or you have to have I don't know something like that's going to impress people but you don't have to be a professional yeah yeah <laughs> yeah sorry I've messed up your one takeaway I had a really good time talking with Dylan and I feel like there is still so much left to talk about we will be having a few more live recordings as the podcast sort of gets going and picks up so look out for those and I hope to see you or hear you next time